1: or starting a successful business, or delving into spirituality. So on this podcast, I chat with experts and thought leaders from different fields about their tips and tricks on doing exactly that. So let's get right into it. Hello, friends, and welcome back to another episode of the Dream Bigger Podcast. Now, it may sound like I am in the wilderness, but I'm actually at home at my parents' house in Dhaka, and there's birds everywhere. So that's what you're hearing right now. So today's episode is with Jennifer Zuccherini, who is an incredible entrepreneur. Okay. So if you are at all interested in entrepreneurship, this is the episode for you. So Jennifer is the founder of Fleur de Mall, which is a very successful fashion brand. And what you'll find really interesting about this episode, which I thought was super interesting about her background is that she was actually the founder or the co-founder of a very successful business prior to starting Fleur de Mall. So she was the founder or co-founder of Kiki de... Montparnasse, which is another successful lingerie brand. So in this episode, we cover a whole range of topics, including, you know, building community when you have a business in a specific niche. In the case of Jennifer, her business, businesses actually are very like lingerie centric and so she had to speak to a customer in a very different way than a typical fashion brand. So there's a lot of great takeaways there. Also we talk about raising money and I know that fundraising is a hot topic for a lot of you guys. I get a lot of questions about it and so you know she really goes in depth around what that is like, and just a whole bunch of topics, which I think you guys are going to find really helpful and useful in your own entrepreneurial journey. There's like a lot of really good takeaways. All right. So before we dive into the episode, let's go over this week's review, which comes to us from Orlady. And she, they, he (laughs) says, um, Just love it. I can't miss it anymore. It's a very interesting and reliable show. Keep it up. I'm from the Dominican Republic. Oh my God, that is so cool. I love hearing where my listeners are from. So, Orlody, I really appreciate you leaving this review. And you guys, if you feel like the show brings you value, please take the time to rate and review the show. You guys have no idea how much it means to me. All you have to do is open the Apple Podcast app, scroll down to where it says rate and review the show. And in the rating section, if you feel like I've deserved it, please leave me a five-star rating. And in the review section, tell me anything you want me to know. Give me your feedback. How are you liking the show? What topics do you want to hear more of? Dream guests, guests you've really loved. Any information you can give me helps me show up as a better host, which of course, you know, I'm always trying to improve. So the more I hear from you, the more I can do that. So any review you can leave me, I am so grateful for. Okay. And then the last thing is this week's hot tip, which is actually a new shampoo recommendation. So I've talked about the way shampoo in the past, which I absolutely love. But I picked up the Jisoo shampoo before coming home to see my family this time, because I just wanted to try something new. And also because I was picking this up from Abu Dhabi and they didn't have anything from the way. And so I was like, I'll try Jisoo because I love their hair oil. So this shampoo is absolutely phenomenal. It makes my hair smell so good. It is free of sulfates and phthalates, which I really like. And it just, my hair has just felt very healthy and shiny. And so, you know, I'm always interested to see what a clean brand is doing with their products. And so I highly, highly recommend this one. I'm really, really impressed with it. And I'm going to try their conditioner as well, which I haven't yet. All right. With that, let's welcome Jennifer Zuccherini to the Dream Bigger podcast. First question I have for you is why lingerie? Because it's such mm. a niche category. Like, were you always really passionate about it? Because, and you've had like a very Long career in lingerie. Mm-hmm. You know, when I was younger, I I knew I wanted to be in fashion
0: from when I was eight years old, basically even mm-hmm. probably younger. But wow. never, I never thought that I would design lingerie. That wasn't even even when I moved to New York and I went to FIT. Mm-hmm. I didn't study intimate apparel. That was an option mm-hmm. that I was. I would have said no way. I don't want to do that because I really just wanted to design ready-to-wear clothing. Mm-hmm. And but I found that in my design work, I always had lingerie references like garter details and bra details. And I was really inspired by designers like Galliano, Alexander McQueen, Stella McCartney back in the day, like just that borrowed a lot from intimate apparel. Mm -hmm. Personally, I had so much passion for it. I was the kind of person that would get so excited to go look at lingerie expense especially like expensive lingerie for whatever Mm -hmm. reason I would just be like oh my god I want this like I, I can't wait to have enough money that I can buy myself things like this so it was just this you know I think people that are really lingerie people it's very emotional and they get excited about it and I just was like naturally one of those people and it really just kind of happened. Like I co-founded a company called Kiki de Montparnasse in 2006.
1: Oh my gosh, that long ago. Yeah. Because I'm familiar with the brand too. And I'm going to get all into that. So you you founded that? Founded that. And that was really something I thought I would do for a couple
0: of years. And then go on and start a real fashion collection. Not in the lingerie space. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But you know when you do something and you realize it's kind of clicks for you, yeah. and it feels really natural. That's that's how lingerie was for me. I had not designed it before that, but I think there was such a strong and positive response to, to things I did back then. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think building this experience and this life kind of, I guess, lifestyle brand around intimacy was really exciting for me. It just like clicked for me, and I kept going down that path.
1: Very cool. Yeah. So, Speaking of Kiki de Montparnasse, which is so cool that you founded that and then you went on to kind of build this career in lingerie. What was the moment where you were like, okay, I'm going to start this lingerie brand? Like, did you notice a gap in the market that you wanted to fill? Like, what was the kind of motivation behind going and doing that?
0: What was missing, I felt, on the market was there wasn't really a place where women or people could go shop and buy things to enhance their intimate life Mm -hmm. that was like a luxury experience Mm -hmm. that felt great. It was very much back then you'd go to a sex shop and, you know, it could be like funny or kitschy or embarrassing for a lot of people to go in and, and buy maybe sexy lingerie or a vibrator or whatever. Now it's so different. I mean, the markets change. You can buy vibrators I mean, literally like everywhere, like every do you, like.
1: I mean, you know, <laughs> I don't need to ask you if you remember, but I remember when I was even in college, mm-hmm. like you'd go to a sex shop and then you'd be given this like like just sketchy looking black garbage bag to like take your things. And it was just not the vibe at all. Like it made you not want to go. Yeah,
0: exactly. And that was very much, or going, you know, going with a partner. It wasn't like a, it wasn't a nice experience. So I really wanted to create that experience where it was much very much that concept was so much about the retail Mm -hmm. experience. And we had a beautiful store in Soho and I didn't really know how people were going to react. I was like, are we going to open the store and people are going to be upset about it? Like I didn't really, you know, it was like such a new thing because we did carry aside from lingerie. We carried a lot of, you know, sex toys. And did you guys
1: make that too?
0: We we made one toy, but uh-huh. mostly we carried other brands. Very cool. Yeah. We curated everything from art, music, books, toys. We we had our own like lubricant. Mm-hmm. We carried restraints and leather floggers. And oh, incredible. Riding crops and, you know, all that, all those things. But when we opened, I, I was wondering if people were going to be, how people were going to respond to it. Well, people loved it. We had a very, very positive response to the brand. I really felt that there was this opportunity to create that, that environment for people to come shop.
1: When you were going through this process, like, I know that you were saying that you had a really great positive response, but did you also feel that you had to do some education around it? Because you were probably one of the first to this, I guess, era that began where it was like a little bit more sex positive because I remember, I mean, even when I was in college, which was like 2009, 2010, it was very kind of hush-hush. There wasn't, mm-hmm. it, I mean, now I think people are just a lot more open to talking about it and stuff.
0: Definitely. We did a lot of education. We had, we would have events sometimes three nights a week there. Wow. We had so many different things going on. We'll, we would bring in sex experts. We would bring in, you know, if we partnered with somebody and carried their toys bring in that person to give a talk, bring in people how to give a spanking, like how to tie somebody up, like all these different, all this programming around educating people because when people were very interested to learn. And mm-hmm. I think too, to come to a space where they felt like I'm going to feel comfortable here. I'm not worried about being seen going into or walking out with like a weird bag. So yeah, education was definitely a big part of it. And this is pre-social media. Yeah. I mean, there was Facebook, but you know.
1: I think what you're saying though with like, this sort of education, these like, you know, sort of classes, if you will. I think it really is the beginning of activations and community building pre-social media. Did you have a background in events? Like, how did your mind even go there? Because I I think it's really smart.
0: Yeah. I think that we, I don't know, it was a part of our mission from the beginning was to have this education component. Mm -hmm. And also I think because we had this beautiful physical space, we had this 3000 square foot store and we had a second floor that was basically a showroom where we could have private events. Mm-hmm. I think having that space just made it so much easier to, and also I think, you know, to be, I think looking at other stores that did exist at that time, like now I'm going to get their name wrong. I always forget if it's, you know, Bayland, mm-hmm. Bayland. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I know them. <laughs> they were really great yeah. with education yeah. always. And I think we did a lot of research and was, checking out what was on the market. So we knew that that was an important component. We also, because we had this beautiful space, people wanted to do events with us all the time there. Like, can you do my engagement party, my bachelorette? Like we were just becoming, yeah, party planners, which was fun at some point, but it was also, I think, yeah, distracting probably.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But it was kind of what was necessary from a marketing standpoint, I bet. Yeah. For any founders who are kind of starting a company that's almost like trailblazing in a diff, in a new kind of industry? Because I think that's what you guys did. You were at the beginning of this whole, what, before this, this category, I guess, took off. What advice can you give to them about building community and I guess like really being a trailblazer there? I think I always try to think about it like what would I want to
0: learn about or know about mm-hmm. or experience? Yeah. And I think of myself as the demographic, and some on some level, and mm-hmm. for a lot of founders, like I'm sure, maybe for your brand, you felt there was a need, and you can relate with what totally. your customer probably wants. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to provide, and I still do, experiences and events that I would want to be a part, learn of. about, or be a part of, and that's how we approach everything through that filter of you know, does this like, or my team, do we, does this, is this something we'd want to go to, do, like gone are the days especially if you have you're having events where you can just have a like cocktails and <laughs> just have people come shop like nobody nobody wants to do that. It's, it's boring. just boring. So you have to provide something some reason to get someone to bother to go into a store because you don't really even need to do that anymore. And same thing with online, I think if you're doing you know during the pandemic, we did a lot of i g lives where We interviewed people Mm -hmm. and now it's like changed a little bit. I don't think people are as connected with IG Live. So it's like, well,
1: how can we do that through TikTok or Reels or something else? Smart. I like that. Story time. After college, I decided to be sober for about four years. Well, it didn't really start out that way, right? It was initially just a month, which turned into six months, which turned into a year. And then before I knew it, it was four years. And my reason for this was that I really wanted mental clarity and I'd feel a lot of anxiety after drinking, especially because back then I'd just launched my blog and I was working a full-time job. So I would typically use the weekends to work, which meant that I actually had to wake up early. So if I'd been out the night before drinking, I'd always wake up feeling like crap. And then I'd wake, like I just have a ton of anxiety around the fact that I had all this work to do. What I learned from my experience is that, A, I have a fucking great personality that can thrive in social settings even without alcohol, and honestly, not relying on alcohol to get me through social settings made my people skills a lot stronger. And secondly, I realized that the thing that I missed about alcohol was the feeling of getting a drink that I really enjoyed. Enter Monday's non-alcoholic craft spirits, including mezcal, gin, and whiskey, which provide the look feel and most importantly taste of your favorite beverage. If you've ever been sober curious or are just looking to cut back, this is just such a great brand to look into because you can literally have your mescal margarita and still feel great the next day. A win-win. Honestly, I wish I had this brand available to me years back when I was starting to experiment with sobriety because I was just out there with my sparkling soda water. And it wasn't even fun to drink. Okay. So this is just incredible. (laughs) Monday has a special offer for you guys. Visit drinkmonday.co slash dream bigger for 15% off your order. That's drinkmonday.co slash dream bigger for 15% off your order. Enjoy. Check out Lipstick on the Rim wherever you get your podcasts. So you went from Kiki to in-house at Victoria's Secret, am I correct? Yes. It's. Mm-hmm. I think this is what I'm really interested in because you kind of always see it the other way around. Mm-hmm. What made you decide to go from starting your own brand to in-house somewhere?
0: Yeah, you know, I never thought I would take that path. I always, my whole life, only thought about starting my own company. That's mm-hmm. the only thing since I was a child yeah. that, like, literally I never thought I would work for anybody else. I was approached by Victoria's Secret. Initially, I said, I'll, I'll take the meeting because mm-hmm. I think it's always important when you have an opportunity yeah. to not go with your judgment of what you think that opportunity is or how you're going to feel about it but be open mm-hmm. but but in my mind I was like I'll never do that like I'm I'm luxury like I like designer like no 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 like mm-hmm. I can't I can't relate to that I don't like it but then you know after having several meetings probably 10 meetings with wow. Victoria's Secret they really really they wanted, wanted me. you <laughs> They wanted me to come and they made me an incredible offer and you know it was hard it was a real crossroads for me because I had to make a decision if I was going to stay on this lingerie path because the other angle, the other direction I was going to go in was to go away from that and do something totally different. Mm -hmm. And then, you know what? It just, I felt like having that experience, going somewhere, going to the biggest lingerie brand in the world, learning how they operate their business Mm -hmm. was going to be the best balance to the experience I already had, which was luxury, niche. You know, we made everything in New York. To have that opposite experience kind of opposite end of the spectrum and learn from this massive brand, I was really, it it suddenly dawned on me that this was the right move for me. And also they made me a great offer that, you know, you're struggling, even though it looks glamorous on the outside, often when you have your own company, you're struggling for a long time financially. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I just, it was kind of like the right thing for me at that moment. And it really was.
1: Also, I think, I mean, you're talking about it from like a manufacturing standpoint and like a brand identity standpoint, but even from an operational standpoint, kind of having that varied experience and understanding, okay, like this is how we do it at a startup versus a corporate company is, I think, really valuable knowledge to have. Extremely valuable.
0: I didn't know how I was going to, if I was going to be a good fit for I'd never been in a corporate mm-hmm. environment. Mm-hmm. I'd never done anything like that. I, you know, even the lingo, I didn't even understand what people were talking about, you know, when I first started there. So to have that education and to be there and actually I enjoyed it. I was very supported.
1: Yeah, I mean, you have a lot more infrastructure to support you and I think that if if someone does come out of the corporate world to go into entrepreneurship, I think it makes them much stronger as well, you know, because you have like with me and my husband, we're co-founders of our brand and I have never worked corporate, but he has. And so I feel like the the background that he brings to it has made our brand so much better because, you know, he understands how to manage people. He understands the infrastructure behind a really strong business, which I've only really been a solopreneur, you know, and so it's a different kind of experience. Yes. It really adds a lot of value for sure. So then talk to me about, I guess, the nitty gritty of, okay, you decide that you're going to leave your brand to go work at Victoria's Secret. What happens to the portion of the company you own? Do you sell it off? Like what happens?
0: You know, it was a very complicated structure the way we were three founders. Mm -hmm. And in the end, it was a little bit challenging. I think sometimes when you have more than one founder, I felt at the end of that, like, when i do something i'm probably not going to have a co-founder not that that doesn't that can't be great cuz that can be an incredible thing mm-hmm. as well unfortunately after i left the company a few years later went into a form of bankruptcy and completely they dissolved the company and then new people bought it and took it over so nothing really materialized in terms of some sort of like exit
1: right right yeah wow that's that's tough i had a feeling
0: part of the reason why I left was because I I felt that I had this amazing experience that I had gotten so much out of it, but I Mm -hmm. felt like I was at the pinnacle of what I could do there. And as far as we could go with the way things were structured. Yeah. So it was just the right time for me to leave. Mm -hmm. Even though it's hard, you think, well, how could you leave? Sometimes being a co-founder doesn't mean, I don't know. Mm -hmm. Even when I started the company, I didn't think I would do that forever because in my mind, I thought I was going to start a fashion brand and not do this. So I was like, I'll do this for a few years and I'll do something else. Yeah, totally. So I looked at it very casually at that time, which now I would look at very differently. Of course. <laughs> I you was know, young. I was like... A hundred
1: percent. And like sometimes like one entrepreneurial venture kind of gets you ready for the next or kind of what's next in your career. And I'm sure that you took away a ton of lessons from that first experience that you brought to Victoria's Secret and then you brought to Florida Mall, which you are. Are, are you a co-founder here or single founder, right? Single founder. Yeah. With so investors, yeah. I mean, and I think it preps you for everything that's to come. Absolutely. So, talk to me about your time at Victoria's Secret. Like, what were some of the tangible skills you learned while you were there that you've brought into Fleur de Mall?
0: I think what I learned a lot about there was just, I think, process mm-hmm. on some level. I'm definitely more, I'm an entrepreneur, but I'm definitely a creative person and mm-hmm. a designer. And that's, I don't like scheduling. You know, I'm, now that's what I do because yeah. you have to. You yeah. have to. But I think. Victoria's Secret was such a such a well-oiled machine. So to see the calendar and the process and how everybody fell in line and like, you know, everyone's role. I mean, it's so layered. It's not like, you know, a founder-led business where you make all the decisions and it kind of buck stops with you. It's layers of, it's like committees of people that have to approve things, which almost is too much, but it's you still learn a lot in that, in that process. I think also understanding more about what what people are looking for in this country versus what, what I would see in a very niche company. Mm-hmm. So understanding what basically was selling across the U.S., Sometimes things that, I mean, I think the whole market's changed now. It's completely different. But I think there were some things that I was like, who's gonna buy that? It's like never gonna work. And it would be like the number one, best, biggest thing ever. Well,
1: (laughs) what's, what's really fascinating is that, I mean, I have friends in retail, right? And they're, you know, either from fashion brands or like, CPG like food whatever it is and what i hear is that something that does well in a specific market doesn't necessarily do well in another and then like you know you you speak to your retailer like maybe it's a target or a sephora whatever it is and there's almost like specific protocols for whatever stores you know because certain things just do well in a market when you're like what the hell but it's yeah. True.
0: <laughs> and we had that as well at Victoria's Secret. The buy would be different depending on the market. Totally. So Miami, that was called certain markets were called, I might be getting this wrong, but I, if I remember correctly, they were called like hot and sexy.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Miami <laughs> does sound hot and sexy. Yeah. And
0: that would be, you know, the sexier styles, the brighter colors versus what they would buy for, you know, the Midwest mm-hmm. or um, mm-hmm. other regions. So it was kind of interesting to see how how the buy would differ and you just learn a lot. You also getting out there and, you know, we would do store visits and talking to people on the floor. You just learn a lot about the wants of and desires of a different customer. For me anyway, I learned a lot about
1: Totally. That. Yeah. I mean, it's really, really valuable experience. What years were you there?
0: I was there 2008 till 2011. Wow. That was like the pinnacle heyday of Victoria's Secret. It was a great time. There was none of the, I mean, there were little You know, glimpses of what Mm -hmm. was to come. Mm -hmm. But it was actually, other than in 08, there was a financial meltdown. (laughs) I started there before that happened, Mm -hmm. which was a blessing that I had gone there at that time. But every year was like the best year ever. Every year was double bonus year. Like it was just, you know, there was, it was booming. It was booming.
1: I mean, I remember when I was in high school and even college, that everyone would get together to watch the Victoria's Secret mm-hmm. fashion show. I mean, it was like a whole event that we would all get together for and it was all like the top models at the time and, you know, the the bra, you know, the crystal or whatever mm-hmm. bra. It was like a whole highlight. Bra. Yeah, it was crazy. Yeah. So, you were really there at that in the heyday. I think it was heyday. It was a, it was actually a great time to mm-hmm. be there. So, what do you think that Victoria's Secret kind of did wrong or like that they could have improved that you really wanted to bring to your own lingerie brand?
0: I think there's a lot of things they could have done earlier and mm-hmm. they would have avoided all of everything. Mm-hmm. I think that people's tastes were shifting. I think that there was a lack of diversity. There was a lack of, they could have just made some changes with casting. Mm-hmm. And I think people, it would have gone a long way Yeah, and they should have done it. They should have just done it earlier. Mm-hmm. They knew that that's what people wanted. I think on some level, they felt maybe, well, sales are great. And if sales are great, that means that we're giving our customer what she wants. And so why would we make any changes? And sometimes you just have to look at it more holistically of what's the experience of the brand in the media. And I think they just waited too long. And then there was just such a big backlash. And it's so hard. And now they're doing all of those
1: things. But I don't know. A lot In the meantime, a lot of other brands have popped up. They own the market in their prime, right? And I feel like they could have probably continued to be a leader had they moved a little bit quicker. But I think that this is where sometimes larger brands run into issue, whereby it's almost at that point, the layers of hierarchy and bureaucracy is kind of what works against you Mm -hmm. because it's just so tough to come to a decision and be nimble, you know? And I'm not surprised that you look at the sales numbers because, you know, that's that's like a primary kind of consideration for, to point to your success, but it's so much broader than that.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: So you left in 2011, right? Mm-hmm. So did you know that you were leaving to start your own brand?
0: Oh, yes. Yeah, I started working on my own brand probably a year before I left mm-hmm. or maybe six months before I left. And I started, you know, I think it's great if you have, an idea of a business you want to pursue to really start by working on a business plan. Mm -hmm. And that's something that I thought I would do in a few weeks. I'm like, I'm going to knock this out. Like Mm -hmm. it's going to be not not too hard, but it actually took me months and months and months to do that Mm -hmm. and to really do it thoughtfully and really think through and plan out what my vision was and work out all the financials. And I had to like hire someone to help me build all those financial models. And then through that process, I really learned a lot about what I really wanted to do with my next brand and um, I knew I wanted it to be primarily direct to consumer and I wanted to launch with only online first and that I wanted it to be more a more attainable price point so something a little bit for that person who's graduated from Victoria's Secret who wants something a little bit better but maybe not as expensive as what I had done I had done in the past Mm -hmm. which I felt was beautiful but also just difficult for our customer which is a younger customer sometimes to come back and make frequent purchases. So I was working on this idea and then what I started doing was just talking to people that I respect and admire and getting people's opinions on on the business plan and what I was doing. And then I had a few people express interest in investing in the brand had if I had decided to go forward with it. And once I felt I had that interest, then I had the confidence to leave my cushy job, (laughs) I'd also saved a lot of money, Mm. which allowed me to be able to do this as well. Like I wouldn't have been able to have done that if I stayed where I was. Yeah. Like I'd never saved money before ever. (laughs) I was always, you know, just not paycheck to paycheck, but kind of in New York, you know, like you're, well, yeah,
1: when you're young, you're living in <laughs> yeah. New York. Like, I mean, you don't necessarily think, oh, let, let me be let, responsible save some, and save some yeah. money. <laughs> like, yeah. I am just like,
0: do I have enough money to cover totally, what I need to yeah. cover this month? So that allowed me to do that. And that gave me that cushion to have that time to build, to build Fleur, mm-hmm. at Fleur de Mall, And then I launched it less than one year, about one year later in November, 2012.
1: When you were at Victoria's Secret, did you know that you were going to go on later on to kind of start your own thing again? 100%. I never thought I would stay there. I thought
0: I'll stay there for two years max. Mm-hmm. I just want to learn. I want to, I just want to learn. And then I'm going to take all that knowledge and I'm going to start my own thing. I ended up staying there for almost four years, mm-hmm. which was much longer than I thought because it was just, you know, it was actually comfortable, you know, and I was making money and I felt good. Like i felt sort of secure there. Yeah. But I also in the last year or so was getting kind of bored. I mean, you know what every day is going to look like and every week's going to look like and it looks the same every year. Like it's hard to explain, but yeah, it's very insular.
1: And I think as an entrepreneur, I don't know, I think we're like masochists. Like we enjoy (laughs) the kind of unknown. (laughs) I can't imagine having a corporate job for years on years. I just don't think that I have the I, I, I like a little bit of instability.
0: <laughs> yes, yeah, I like I like new. Like I love. That's why I'm in fashion. I mean, because I want newness and change, and I don't like things to be the same. And not, things for me now are never the same. They're always. It's like every day is different, but mm-hmm. there things can feel the same. Even the people that you communicate with gets very small. So. Yeah.
1: So you said that there was some interest in investing in your company. So mm-hmm. you raised money, I guess, from these people who expressed interest. Yeah, I raised money from to start with mostly kind of like friends and family
0: and some smaller funds, like family offices. And then, yeah, I didn't raise a ton of money, but I raised
1: money and got started. Can you give advice to entrepreneurs who are looking to raise kind of like a smaller round from Mm -hmm. either family offices or friends and family, I would think is like pretty straightforward, but like, let's, let's start with family offices.
0: Yeah. I think before you even do that is to really try to get feedback on your business plan whether if from someone you trust maybe not someone that you're trying to pitch to but Mm -hmm. a mentor a friend somebody who's in the space who's an investor or has invested to really go through your deck and like help you fine-tune your pitch and what your message is because Mm -hmm. it takes a really long time to get that messaging down honestly like I feel like years it took for us I was doing it but it had to get better and better. I agree. It's so much work. And you think it's just much more work than you ever think it's going to be because you're kind of like people are like, tell me in one sentence, like why I should invest in you, you know, and it's (laughs) sometimes that's a really hard question to answer, especially when you're building a brand, because I wasn't like, oh, I'm going to be the Uber of bras. I mean, I could have done something much more lucrative and fast, like I'm gonna undercut Victoria's Secret and go direct to consumer, Mm -hmm. which a lot of people did. And I would have made much more money and scaled much faster and raised a ton more money. Mm -hmm. I know that. For some reason, I chose a much more difficult path because I want I love building brands and I wanted it to be a certain way. And that's harder for people to understand. You know, they they wanna hear like the quick pitch. So, to get someone to be like, "Oh, I'm building a brand. What does that mean? And how do they know if it's going to be work out or not?" It's so subjective.
1: Yeah, there's no metrics.
0: <laughs> yeah. I think if you're if that's the type of business you want to launch is trying to find investors that have invested in brands and believe in brands, not just someone coming out of and I'm not saying this is not a good way to do something, but like some of people come out of business school and they're totally. like Totally. You know, I I want to do this. this. Yeah, exactly. I couldn't find a shirt that fit like X, and that's their whole thing.
1: Yeah, I I totally hear you. So I know that I mean the category that you were pitching for is I mean not exactly the the usual. Was it tough to pitch a lingerie brand to investors?
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean I think about how many people I've met with over the years. So I have like probably forty now. 10 years in, I'm Mm -hmm. about to celebrate our 10 year anniversary.
1: I have. For Fleur? Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. Incredible. Congrats. Thank (laughs) you.
0: We have close to 40 investors, but that's multiple years of. Of course. But I think about how many people I met with to get to that 40. If you look at a total number of people, hundreds, like hundreds and hundreds of people. I can't even remember people sometimes that I had a meeting with after. Mm -hmm. So I think there's that as an entrepreneur being very persistent and resilient and all those things you hear like getting back out there even if everybody tells you no you can't let that you got to figure out okay is there something wrong with my pitch like does this business have legs you really have to take that information but then you also have to keep getting out there too it's like dating
1: could not agree with you more and I remember one time we pitched an investor and we were told no And I know that it wasn't because of the strength of our business, because our numbers were extremely strong and we kind of fell into the right niche and everything. Mm -hmm. But Nish and I, we were like, that was our pitch that like our pitch was the issue. And you have to be okay with like taking that no and then refining it and improving as much as you can. Yes.
0: Yeah. And you have good days and bad days sometimes. You go into a meeting and you kill it and you know that feeling. And other times it's shaky. And sometimes you don't have that chemistry with people, mm-hmm. or they don't they don't want to go in liking what you're doing. Yeah. One advantage I had was that I'd done this before. I had been in the industry for a while. I had been done the scaled something, but also been a, a big company. So that was definitely on my side in terms of, you know, people want to know have you done this before? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. But, you know, even when someone hasn't done it before, I think it really is about getting your story correct. Yes. And never, you know, being swayed by a no, like move on, you know, move on. on. Like even the, I mean, even look at you. Like, I mean, you just said that you have 40 investors, but you've spoken to hundreds. Yeah. And that's someone who's (laughs) had a ton of experience. So what's that to say for the rest of us?
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, you know, I think it's always, again, like, harder when it's a space that's more special yeah. in a way too.
1: Yeah. So how did you go about kind of figuring out this very strong brand identity that Fleur has? Because you've done a fantastic job with that. I mean, you. everyone knows what Fleur de Mall is and I feel like you just have this brand presence.
0: <laughs> Thank you. You know, that's probably my favorite part. I love starting companies. I, I get so excited to build something mm-hmm. and build the experience that someone's going to have with the brand. So it took me a long time to even find the name. Yeah. And when I found the name Fleur Mal, you know, which was inspired by the famous collection of poems by Baudelaire, it had that like everything I wanted was in that name, the mm-hmm. duality of something beautiful, but that also had more of a kind of this like edge to it and the you know just the layers of a name like that that really helped inform me of to what the branding should look like mm-hmm. and then i worked with a branding company i love called base very good friends of mine and we spent a long time working on you know our f is actually made up of thorns you know cool. there's there's lots of like things in Complexity, there that yeah. that people might not recognize right away but for me it was important to have that really thought through As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills.
1: The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is.
0: Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact.
1: When it comes to the brand identity, do you have kind of almost a person that is flirt-em-all? So like, for example, I know who the array customer is. I know where she's working out, where she's grocery shopping. And that kind of helped inform how we were going to do things on social, like who we were speaking to. So do you guys have that as well, where you have like floor?
0: (laughs) Yeah, I think we definitely know we have a couple of different key demographics Mm -hmm. that we are. That's our customer. Like most of our customers are 25 to 35 and they're women and they're like, you know, career oriented, Mm -hmm. beloved fashion and there's that customer, but mm-hmm. we also have like this Gen Z customer as well. That's mm-hmm. 20% of our customers. So we have this nice mix. And then we have like a maybe a more sophisticated customer that loves luxury lingerie and wearing something beautiful under her power suit or whatever she's wearing. I think I'm definitely a filter for that too, because yeah. I'll think about where our customer's going, what music she's listening to, where she's traveling. And I just kind of like get that from everything around Mm -hmm. us as a brand. And we're always looking at for inspiration Mm -hmm. in that. So yeah, definitely think about who that woman is.
1: Very cool. I was telling you off air before we started recording that I really loved your brand because of the fact that you were size inclusive. And I think, so, I mean, my listeners, most people know this, that I had breast reduction pretty recently, but my entire life had, I mean, the bane of my existence was finding lingerie, which was cute, but also fit me. Not like half my boob out. Oh my God. It was so (laughs) uncomfortable. And your, your lingerie was super sexy, but it also fit me. And it wasn't that size inclusive was like your entire identity was just a part of your identity. So can you talk about how you incorporated larger cup sizes and kind of appeal to that consumer as well?
0: Absolutely. So from being in the industry for many years, I have heard from so many women, you know, I can't find a beautiful bra, I have larger cup size, you know, it's so like, I want something sexy and beautiful. So I think part of the reason why more brands don't do it earlier is that it's, it's, a big undertaking and it's an investment. And sometimes you're like, well, I wanna do that, but maybe you don't have the resources to build that out immediately. Mm -hmm, So mm -hmm. it took us a little while, but something I always wanted to do. So we did it in 2018. And we basically started that project as almost like a different part of our collection. It is an extension of our bras, but we wanted to fit them as their own styles. So starting at 34 D. Going up to at that time 38G. Now we're going to 40 G. And we really look at that as like, you know, those bras need totally different components. Mm -hmm. They're their own thing. Like they look the same, but we wanted to engineer them really, really thinking about what that woman needs and fitting them on much larger cup sizes, obviously. And things change, like the elastics change and the underwire changes and Hook and eye changes, like everything. Even
1: I feel like one of the big issues was, and like anyone with a larger breast can probably relate to this, where like even if it fit you, it was almost like like just over here, like in the middle area, mm-hmm. like a little bit it's would come out, D yeah. Kind. And it was like it was just like not. It was it was just like not. It didn't look good under your clothes.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I think part of that too is women not wearing the right size mm-hmm. and not knowing what their size is, and every brand's a little different. It's it's really not a science. Mm-hmm. So I think people get really attached to what their size is. And sometimes you're like, well, maybe maybe you're a different size in our brand or in another brand. That's okay. Totally, yeah. That's also just true, like, yeah. don't even worry about it. It doesn't really matter. And so I think sometimes people want to be, like sometimes people don't want to be a larger cup size.
1: I struggled with that. I remember, mm. I mean, when I was younger and, you know, I just couldn't fit the double D at Victoria's Secret anymore. And I was like, refusing to move up yes. a cup size. Yeah. And it wasn't, by the way, can you imagine until like 2016 when I was in my mid 20s, okay? That's, we're like 24, okay? That's when I first put on a bra that actually fit me. And wow. I i mean, <laughs> people, it's crazy to think about that, yeah. right? Because for us, like D-cups
0: are such a popular size and people think a D-cup's a large cup size, but it's not really. It's really not anymore, And I think there's just this whole misconception about bra sizing. And even if, you know, if you're a 32DD, that's the same cup size as a 34D. The whole system is confusing. Can you explain, like, what the hell is up with that? It's so stupid. Why? Why? Like, Like, what? I know. First of all, why isn't your band measurement just your band measurement? It's not. It's like your band measurement plus X number of inches. Like, it's so... (laughs) So why is it like this? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, honestly, we thought I thought at one point like we'd come up with our own system. Uh-huh. But then to also re-educate people. Oh, people, my God. Yeah. It's like there's already so many because there's like UK does it differently and Italy
1: does it differently. And trust me, yeah. I <laughs> have bras from European brands and I'm like, what, what, how, how do what, I translate I know, it? Like
0: <laughs> universal. Can't we just have a universal system for this? It should just be based on measurements. But anyway. Yeah. So the way cups go up is. For example, if you, a 34B is the same cup size as a 32C. So Why? It's just the way the system works. I do not know. But <laughs> for some people, they're like, oh, I'm not a C cup. I'm like, well, it's actually not a C cup. It's the same as your B cup, but the band's tighter. Mm-hmm. And for a lot of people, that they might need a, a tighter band. Sometimes a tighter band is better to start with because it's going to stretch out over time. So there's all these sister sizing that you have to think about. Like you you could fit both, you could fit into three sizes Mm -hmm. of bras potentially, but it's super confusing. Even I have a hard time keeping it straight. It's like what I do.
1: I know it's, it's, (laughs) it's a, it's a treat. (laughs) (laughs) So talk to me about someone coming into Fleur de Mall, like what kind of experience can they expect? Because, you know, for someone with a larger cup size and like, kind of like a smaller band size, it was a very disheartening experience going to a lot of the mass kind of bra stores that existed so what kind of experience do you guys offer to your customers
0: yeah so well most of our business is online but we have a store in new york and a store in la that's what i was referring to and at our stores we always hire people that we make sure that we train people on sizing Mm -hmm. and try to make that experience really comfortable and fun because nobody actually likes to get sized for a bra for whatever reason they just like are like no I don't want to do that like so what I want our stores to feel like is it feels somewhat like a luxury experience but very friendly and very approachable Mm -hmm. so we all of our team hopefully can't always promise but hopefully you're going to come in and they're going to be super excited to help you, but also give you your your space to Mm -hmm. explore. But then they're going to try to help you get measured because for that reason that a lot of people are wearing the wrong size. Yeah. So definitely there's that whole, that experience of getting measured and then probably pulling out multiple sizes sometimes of a bra just to see what size you are in our brand. And yeah. How do you care for bras? (laughs) You know, I think it depends how often you wear your bras and what you're, I think- if you can wash them, I don't want to say wash them less, but you can wear a bra three times, maybe maybe four times, mm-hmm. depending on what you're doing. If you're not, like, sweaty and yeah. it, like, you know, obviously if you're, like, sweating and New doing York something. New York in the heat yeah, of August. <laughs> then you might want to wash it after that one wear. So everybody's a little bit different. I, so I do something that's a little bit different than what I recommend
1: tell us what you do i want to know the insider jennifer bra experience (laughs) this is
0: what i do but we don't put this on any of our labels because people will not do it correctly and then they'll be like oh my god my bra's ruined (laughs) i wash all of my lingerie in a mesh lingerie bag with a zipper which Uh you can buy on amazon for five dollars and i put it in my machine cold water delicate with delicate wash like the laundress or wool light or something Mm -hmm. and then i hang everything to dry but so you don't have to wash everything by hand. Mm-hmm. But another way to do it is like a little bucket or in your sink and cap full of detergent, hand wash, rinse, cold water, and hang to dry. And what but is... You could do
1: it in your machine. Okay. And what is that... Is hand washing recommended by like your store then? Yes. Everything we put hand wash. Everything. Wow. Okay. Well, I'm going to try your method.
0: Yeah. <laughs> it does work. I Especially if you... If you have a machine that doesn't have a center, mm-hmm. I forget what that's called, but it—it's machines now often don't have that centerpiece mm-hmm. that moves. It's like a... Yeah, I know what you're talking about. That's much more... that Without that centerpiece, it's much more uh, gentle on your clothing.
1: Oh, interesting. Yeah, because okay. it doesn't
0: have that like...
1: Pulling and that, pushing things yes. around. Yeah, yeah but the mesh
0: bag is game changer and the dryer's a nightmare. Like I would not put... I'd put very few things in the dryer. Dryer's good for like sheets and towels and denim but not
1: I agree yeah, I agree it like eat it your clothes it completely fucks my clothes yeah. so I just I try not to as well okay so we've covered a lot of ground I want to do a quick rapid fire before we wrap okay okay so the first question is what is a habit that's a non-negotiable for you exercising love that what's your favorite exercise <laughs>
0: now I want to know <laughs> that became kind of a non-negotiable for me. I do a lot of, I do different things. I do like Pilates. Mm-hmm. I do SLT. I do a lot of workouts at home, like band yeah. workouts. I do, I ride my bike sometimes.
1: Very I cool. mix it up. I I really want to try SLT. <laughs> I've heard it's amazing. I think it's, it really, I think, is a really efficient okay. workout. You've mm-hmm. convinced me I'm going to do it before I leave New York. Okay, what is a book that everyone should read? A book that I loved when I read it,
0: and I always think about it, is the book Flow.
1: Mm-hmm. Tell me um, what the
0: book is about. It's about when when you're really focused on something, mm-hmm. and or you're doing something that you really love, and you get into that flow state, mm-hmm. which is something I'm doesn't happen for me very often. Mm-hmm. But as a designer, I love that feeling when you're doing something it doesn't have to be creative. It could mm-hmm. be anything. But let's say for me, if I create the right space to be creative, which requires for me a lot of things, mm-hmm. like I can't just like be like busting out stuff mm-hmm. like for 15 minutes. Like I need to like have my the pad of paper that I like and the pencils that I like and the right and music and, and getting into that flow state, just like how almost like your brain waves change and it becomes this, all-encompassing experience where almost everything is, else is tuned out. I book's about that.
1: I have to read it because I'm very into like getting into flow state and I feel like you just do a lot more when you're in there, you yeah. know, and everything's kind of like moving and grooving and everything's mm-hmm. coming naturally. Okay, I'm going to read that. I'm actually, funny, funnily enough, I just finished my last book, so I'm in the hunt for a new one. So this is going to be it. Yeah. Last question. If someone could own just one bra, which one would you recommend?
0: I love our Lily bra. Okay. Our Lily Embroidery Demi. Uh-huh. It's I think one of our most iconic bras and people just love it. It's unlined, but it gives you support. It's available in all, you know, through 40G. And it's just like it's a beautiful bra, but it's also kind of functional in the mm-hmm. sense that it it's like smooth underclothing, it looks great on. It's something that it's comfortable. It's just, for me, really, I think, epitomizes our brand.
1: I love so that. Anyways, so many ways. I'm going to go get it. Yes, you must. Later and today. We have it in like 12 colors, probably too many. Very cool. Okay, mm-hmm. Jennifer, this has been awesome. Tell everyone where they can find you. Well, you can
0: find our brand at fleurdumal.com, And you can find on Instagram at NYC, Or mm-hmm. you can find me at Jennifer
1: Zuccherini. Amazing. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening. If you loved the episode and feel like it brought you value, don't forget to rate the show and leave a review. It takes five seconds and really helps the show grow so I can keep bringing on awesome guests. If you want to follow me behind the scenes, you can find me on Instagram at SifHider. And don't forget to hit subscribe so you don't miss a thing. I drop new episodes every Tuesday, so come hang with me and shoot the shit with some really smart people. Learn and unlearn and have a lot of fun. See you next week.